Today's call of worship is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. Today's New Testament reading can be found in your Pew Bible on page 1142. It is Revelation uh, 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Every time I come here, I find that you have done something else that intrigues me. Uh, Unless I missed it last time, you've changed your bulletin to a nicer stock. It's beautiful. really is nice. And so you put a couple extra coins into it, but it's very nice and very much appreciated. So just got to tell you, when you do something really nice, people notice. Let's take a moment and pray. Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, lover of our souls. We give you thanks and praise today. We're so happy to be in your house, and we seek inspiration from your word. Lord, who am I to deliver your message? But Lord, may my heart be pure May my voice be your voice, and may the words be your words, and may Jesus the Christ be praised. In his name, amen. I'd like for you to think about probably the most dramatic six months or so in the history of the Bible, at least in the Old Testament. And that is the time between Passover, when the Lord brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the very first Feast of Tabernacles. One religious full cycle taking place in those months. When you think about what had happened to these people over that period of time, it is mind-boggling. They were slaves making bricks and assembling them in pyramids and other buildings in the land of Egypt. They had felt the whip on their backs. They had felt privation at the hands of their masters. And they had thought they would die that way until the word of the Lord came to Moses and to Aaron. And God led Israel by a mighty hand out of the land of Egypt. That night of Passover must have been 
terrifying, horrifying, and magnificent all at the same time. Terrifying and horrifying that the firstborn in all the land of Egypt were dying, but praising God that by placing the blood of the Lamb on their houses, they were protected. Wandering out of Egypt, getting to the Red Sea with a mountain on either side, the Egyptian army coming up fast behind them, and the sea in front of them, and God saying, watch this. Stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. After passing through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army being swallowed up by those resurging waters, they made their way to a mountain that will forever be thought of as the mountain of the Lord in the Sinai Peninsula. Where after three days of preparation, the Lord came down in holiness on that mountain. Never been there, but I've seen pictures of that place. Not much. I've seen prettier mountains. But I have never seen what they saw that day as the holiness of God is radiating out from that mountain. That whole mountain shrouded with the glory of God's holiness and the voice of God speaking from the mountain. Would you be scared? They were. They said, Moses, you talk to us, but tell God we can't handle this. It's too much for us. And then through the summer months into the early stages of fall, and God is teaching them that it is time for them to take seriously their relationship with him. And the first of ten days of the sound of the shofar, you know what this is, right? This is a ram's horn. Sometimes it's called a trumpet, but it's not like the regular trumpets that we have today. I think most of our trumpets today are brass. In the Bible times, there were some that were made of silver. But this is made from a ram's horn, and the sound that it makes is almost uh, the only other sound I can think of is maybe the wail of a bloodhound. Just kind of, and the chilling sensation that it must have brought up and down the spine of the Israelites when they heard it. And it was a reminder. It was a reminder in 10 days. It will be the Day of Atonement. Have you made your relationship with God firm? Have you brought your sacrifice? Have you applied the blood of the Lamb to your heart? And from Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, the day that the 
ram's horn began to blow. And it blew every day as a reminder. It's time to prepare to meet God. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And then came the great day of atonement. Sacred and solemn time. But also amazing at stress relief. Because on that day, all of the sins of the past are blotted out. They don't exist anymore in the mind of God. They are forgiven. Do you know what it's like to have the weight of sin heavy on your heart? I'm sure you do. I certainly do. God has at times placed His hand on my chest. It feels like it, not literally. And just pushed down on my heart and said, do you feel that? That is sin. Let it go. I'll take it from you. And with the Day of Atonement, all of the sin of the past is gone. And everyone walks about with a lighter step. Everyone's attitude is cheerful. It's bright. It's like the sun has come out in a beautiful blue sky after days of rain and cloudiness. And everyone is rejoicing in the Lord. Five days later, five days after the Day of Atonement, we come to the last festival of the Jewish religious year. And that's where I'd like to direct your attention right now. So take your Bible, pew Bible, personal Bible, whichever you prefer. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. I use the NIV because when it came out, it was such a relief for me to be able to read a Bible out loud without sounding like an idiot because I couldn't get my tongue to wrap around that King James language. It's beautiful if you use it. Bless your heart. I'm fine with it. I just couldn't read it out loud. And so I started using the NIV. And now it's, I've been using it for so long it feels like home. Leviticus chapter 23. And you'll find that this entire chapter deals with most of what we've been talking about. It talks about holy times. And you'll notice that there in verse 3, it sets aside separate from the annual days of worship, the seventh-day Sabbath. If we're talking about holy times, we of course have that. We have uh, the Passover, unleavened bread, the first fruits, which came as part of Passover, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets beginning with Rosh Hashanah and going for ten days up to the Day of Atonement. But now, start at verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, by the way, let me pause here for a moment. You've heard me say that Rosh Hashanah is Jewish New Year, or at least I thought I said it. And you may say, wait a minute, how can you have New Year in the seventh month? That was a question I used to ask, so I'm assuming there may be one or two people here who are wondering, 
how do you have New Year's in the seventh month? Because they had two years. One was religious, one was uh, civil. Okay, And the religious year began with Passover. Remember when the Lord said to Moses, this will be the first of months for you. So the religious year starts then. The civil year starts in the fall. That's why. Okay, so let's go back to the text. Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins. And it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire, and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. There are seven annual Sabbaths in the Scripture. Two of them fall within the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Verse 37, now these are the Lord's appointed feasts which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing offerings made to the Lord by fire, the burnt offerings and the grain offerings, the sacrifices and the drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbath and in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the freewill offerings you give to the Lord. So these things are not exclusive. The Sabbath is also a time for bringing offerings. But notice the reason we're reading all that is so you notice that the Sabbath is held in a special place apart from these annual Sabbath days. So don't let anybody tell you all the Sabbath was just part of that Old Testament stuff. No, it wasn't. It was separate and distinct from the festivals that were held like Sabbaths. But now, verse 39, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, this is the book of Leviticus. This is during the 40 years in the wilderness. Gathering crops? I must confess to you, I had the idea that the Israelites were just kind of marching around in the wilderness, kind of, you know, like the pathfinders, and they're marching every day for 40 years. That wouldn't work. If they didn't stop somewhere for some prolonged period of time, they'd run out of food. They had to plant some crops sometimes. They needed some vegetables I don't know that they had time to raise fruit trees, but they had to have some kind of produce. They couldn't live on the animals that they herded all of the time. So they were in the process of their exile in the wilderness for 40 years, but they weren't moving every day. So when you get to the time where your summer crops have all been harvested. They had some in the spring, some in the the fall. When all of the fall crops or the summer crops had been harvested, it was time for this celebration. So they're bringing their offerings to the Lord. Some of those offerings were for the support of the priesthood. But they are rejoicing. You know, the hard work 
for the Agricultural Society is done for this year, and we're going to come and praise the Lord. Um, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day is also a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruits from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches, and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it on the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, I had a Bible teacher in college who said, I don't ever call it the Feast of Booths because it sounds like I'm saying the Feast of Booze. And he says, uh, Booze isn't something to celebrate. We, we call it here Tabernacles. And so it was ingrained in my head not to say Feast of Booths. And when I do, I try to emphasize the TH so it doesn't sound like B-O-O-Z-E. But um, this was a celebration festival. God had delivered them from their slave existence in Egypt and had brought them to the borders of the land of Canaan. It wasn't God's fault they didn't go in, right? It wasn't God's fault. God intended to take them in to Canaan right away. But there was going to be a little bit of a sojourn between Egypt and Canaan, and so they were going to be dwelling in temporary shelters. That's the purpose of these little booths. And notice what they used to construct these branches, but specifically palm fronds. Palms are used in Scripture as a way of celebrating. Now here in Southern California, there are palm trees all over the place. And, you know, if people don't trim them, you know what happens. The big fronds fall and they're in the street and you're driving over them and they're a mess, right? But when they're green and fresh, they have sort of this festal feeling about them. Maybe you've seen pictures with some palm fronds being waved over some um, fancy person, okay? Eating peeled grapes and being fanned with palm fronds. But they are used in Scripture as a type of celebration because God has brought Israel out of bondage into freedom. He is saying, I'm going to take you home. I'm going to give you a land so rich, it's like it flows with milk and honey. Sounds messy to me. But the beauty of the concept is what appealed to the Israelites. God says, let's celebrate. Let's have an eight-day party. The first and the eighth day, you celebrate with me. And the other days, in addition to celebrating with me, you celebrate with each other. Does that sound fair? Out of eight days, God's taking two. Of course it's fair. I mean, God is the one who made the celebration possible. And so you, you can just let your mind imagine 
that families are going around the oasis, all of the places that had trees, but they were specifically looking for palm fronds where they could celebrate because God had saved them. Now, there's something very interesting about the seventh day of this feast. The day just before the eighth day, the ceremonial Sabbath. It was called Hoshana Rabbah. Hoshana is the Hebrew word from which our word Hosanna is derived. So this is a Hosanna Rabbah. It means the great Hosanna. It was also seen as the last day of the judgment cycle or the days of judgment, which would have begun at Rosh Hashanah. It would have begun on the first day of the seventh month. It would have come up to a real crescendo at the time of the tenth day of the seventh month, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And then by the 21st of the seventh month, three weeks of this, it's as though the judgment has passed. And on this day of the great Hosanna, the people are wishing each other blessings because the judgment seems to have passed and they are saved. So it's the great Hosanna. It's the great Hosanna. It's the great praise because the judgment is done and I have been saved. And Hosanna or Hosanna means save, rescued. It can also, in some circumstances, mean savior or rescuer. So at the end of this judgment cycle, the people are recognizing that even though they have passed through days of wandering and living in temporary shelters, the old has passed and the new has come and I'm saved. It's a celebration. So this idea of Hosanna or Hoshana and palm fronds are linked together in Leviticus and in the early days of Jewish thinking. They're linked with the idea of salvation, redemption, not so much redemption from sin early on, they weren't quite with that yet, but redemption from their enemies and new life, free from guilt. Now, let's fast, let's fast forward quite a ways into the future. And let's go to the Gospel of John chapter 12. Now, I want you to recognize that this is a week before Passover, but the theme of Hosanna is here. It's not at the end of the year yet. 
okay? But we are, um, we are now on a Sunday. The day just before this, a Sabbath day in Bethany, there was one of the most famous Sabbath luncheons of all time. It was a feast at Simon the Pharisee's house. And Lazarus, the one just recently raised from the dead, is one of the guests of honor. And the other guest of honor is Jesus the Christ who raised Lazarus. And while they are at Sabbath lunch, Mary comes in and anoints the feet of Jesus in gratitude for her own personal deliverance. It's kind of good to see the rescue, the salvation that has just preceded because it's not just Lazarus who is rescued from death. It is also Mary who was redeemed and judged not guilty by Jesus after her sinful life prior to meeting Jesus. And so as John begins this pericope in verse 12... He says it's the next day. He's just been talking about the release that had taken place and about the gratitude, and although the word is not used, the Hosanna of Mary. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the feast, this would be Passover, heard that Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is the king of Israel and why were they doing this because they had recognized that Jesus was sent from God that he was the one who had come in the name of the Lord. It's impossible to look at the ministry of Jesus and not associate it with the power of God. You may be thinking, well, the Jews didn't accept it. Oh, yeah, they knew it was true. They just didn't like it. They were like Nebuchadnezzar, who when Daniel said, you're the head of gold, but there's silver and bronze and iron and iron and clay yet to come. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar said, not so, I'm making an image all of gold. They thought, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time, that they could change things. They didn't want Jesus to increase and for them to decrease, as John the Baptist had so eloquently put it just a short time before. They wanted Jesus to decrease so that they could increase. And when they saw the miracles that he worked, their hearts became hardened and cold. And you can't doubt it. It also happened with one of Jesus' disciples. So don't think that because you go to church, the devil has no influence in your life. If he can take the leaders of the church back then, wasn't called church, but it was. If he could take the leaders of the church and a disciple of Christ and get them to deny the Lord, 
Don't think you're up to arguing with him. Don't ever try to debate the devil. The best way to defeat the devil is plead to Jesus, Lord, save me. I'm way out of my league. But you are my rock and my fortress and my strength and my strong tower, my deliverer, my God in whom I trust. So you just, if you're going to say anything to the devil, say, I'm going to refer you to Jesus. He's the one who's handling all business with you. By the way, that works every time. The devil never wins an argument with Jesus. Never. So all of these people are now seeing Jesus coming to the feast and somehow an idea just fills the congregation. There must have been a lot of palm trees nearby because they're thinking, hey, let's celebrate. Let's praise Jesus for what he has done. So they're grabbing these palm fronds and they're waving them in celebration and rejoicing and they're placing them on the roadway in front of Jesus. Some are even laying down their clothing in the path for him. No, the idea didn't start with Sir Walter Raleigh. It started with the people praising Jesus. And they're saying, Hosanna. They're recognizing him as the one who will save them. Unfortunately, they were thinking of salvation from Rome. They just didn't have a big enough vision. What is salvation from Rome compared to salvation from sin? They just didn't get it. They were expecting that Passover feast to be the time when Jesus said, all right, enough is enough. Starting today, we're driving the Romans out of here. Jesus could have done that. Even if it had turned into a military battle and some of the soldiers were killed, not a problem. Wounded, dead, no problem. Just bring them to Jesus. He's a one-person mass unit. He can take care of all of the wounded. Don't have to worry about getting supplies to the battlefront. Jesus can just make loaves and fishes appear out of nothing. And so when Jesus didn't announce the overthrow of Rome, there were many who were disillusioned. But that day, they were singing praise. They were saying, Hosanna, the one who's going to rescue us has come. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At least they were getting that right. He had not come in the name of Israel. He had come in the name of the Lord. They just did not have big enough expectations. Blessed is the king of Israel, because you will recall that Jesus 
came into Jerusalem, the capital city, riding on a donkey's colt. Verse 14 of John 12 says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written in one of the texts you read this morning. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. They saw Jesus in the style of the prophecy entering the capital city of Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem of the nation of Israel, Judah and Israel. And they thought this was utter and complete salvation. They missed the glory and wonder and amazing love of the Christ who just a few days later would give his life to save and rescue not only them, but also each one of us. So we have seen what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus. We've seen the significance of the palm fronds. We have heard the hosannas resounding, but it's not over yet. Turn now, please, to Revelation chapter 7. You might think of Revelation chapter 7 as the introduction of the 144,000. Read verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And we're not going to go into all of that, but I'll tell you that it is a symbolic number and not literal. And I will just give you this by way of proof. They're not listed, the tribes here are not listed according to birth order. Who was the firstborn? Reuben. If you're firstborn, you get a sandwich named after you, right? So it's the firstborn is Reuben. Who's the first here? Judah. Okay? If you look down to uh, verse 6, you find Manasseh. Manasseh is not listed as one of the twelve. Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph. And Joseph, uh, Joseph's place was not listed. The, you had a half-tribe of Ephraim and a half-tribe of Manasseh. But if you look down in verse 8, Joseph is there. Where is Ephraim? He's missing. Where is Dan? He's missing. Why? Because those were tribes that entered into rebellion and apostasy. So it is a symbolic number. So read verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now read verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Verse 4 and verse 9 are describing the same group of people. In verse 4, it is symbolic. In verse 9, it is literal. And I'll just tell you this, you'll see it in just a moment. This group are all of those who are alive at the return of Jesus. They're wearing white robes. Where did they get the white robes? Uh, local dressmaker, right? No, the white robes, the robes are their character. And why are they white? Because they have accepted the righteousness of Jesus to cover their sinfulness. This is the robe of Christ's righteousness. The priest that served in the sanctuary had to be completely covered in their vestments as the priest because you can't have any of your righteousness showing in the presence of God. Christ covers them completely. So this is a group of people who have accepted the Lord. Their hearts have been cleansed. It is the end of that judgment cycle. It is the last of the Feast of Tabernacles. It is the time when judgment has been pronounced in favor of the saints. They are wearing white and they're celebrating. What are they waving, folks? Palm branches. Because they're celebrating. And what is it that they say? Look here at verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The root word for save or salvation is what? Hoshana, Hosanna. Where is Jesus coming when this takes place? He has come from heaven to take his people. Jesus is coming to be the king, not of Israel. Spiritual Israel, yes. But all who have accepted God within the confines of their ability to know of God, God knows who's righteous and who's not. All who have accepted God and God's influence and God's power, and specifically those who have accepted Jesus Christ, they are seeing the approach of Jesus. He's not riding a donkey this time, however. He needs something a little larger because of the entourage. What is Jesus riding when he's returning at this time? A cloud. He's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Right? And so on that cloud with Jesus is whom? Jesus is seated at the right hand of somebody, God, and the angels of heaven are coming. Now it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in Scripture. But come on, for the event that all of heaven has been waiting for since the fall of Adam and Eve, the Holy Spirit's not going to be sitting in heaven and say, I'll kind of hold down the fort here in case anything important happens. 
The important thing is happening. The cloud has the divine God as Father, as Son, as Spirit, and all of the angels of heaven. You don't want to be left clean in the kitchen while history is focused on the climax of the great controversy. All of the heavens are on that cloud. This is a big cloud. Now, I know it starts off small when you first see it. I know that. But it doesn't stay small. It is huge. And the whole world is watching. And there are a few people on the earth. I don't know how many. A lot. What is it that Isaiah says that they will say? They will look up and say, Lo, this is our God. This is our God. We've waited on Him and He has saved us. And they start saying, Hosanna! We're saved. Salvation has come. We are now saved. The judgment is over. Guilt is passed away. And we are saved because the Lamb of God who took away not just the sin of the world, but the sin of my heart, the sin of your heart, the Lamb of God is coming. He's come from heaven that has been His abode for eternity. And He has promised a new capital city from which he will reign. The earth. <laughs> it's hard to imagine that this sin-marred planet will be the forever-after home of the Creator God. Obviously, he's going to do some cleaning up before he moves in. That's why we're told about a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness because God is coming to the capital of the universe. It's here. Just as Jesus was riding the donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus is riding the cloud to the earth. And those who have trusted in Him are there celebrating. They're waving palm fronds, at least symbolically. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, not just in the name of the Lord, but as the Lord. Folks, I don't know what you think about prophecies, whether you think the world's going to go on for a long time or not. I'm 61 years old. When I was a kid and read Bible prophecies, I thought, someday it must happen, but surely not in my lifetime. Well, Shirley was wrong, because the only thing I have not seen either come to pass or everything is just poised, waiting to pounce, is the second coming. It's the only thing that hasn't come yet. 
You look at any other prophecy, and it can be fulfilled in a heartbeat. I don't know when it's going to come. God has prolonged His coming so that more of us can give our hearts to Jesus. More of us can say, I want that salvation. I want that freedom from guilt. I no longer want to be a slave to sin. I don't want to live under the taskmaster Lucifer. I don't want to make bricks. I want to make praise for my God. I don't want to be a captive to sin. I want to be a child of the King. I don't want to be in servitude. I want to be rescued. I want to be saved. And when Jesus comes, should the Lord allow me to breathe long enough, I want to greet Him. If a palm frond is available, I'll be waving it. If not, I'll be just lifting my hands to the Lord and say, Thank you, Jesus. By the way, that's not sinful. Lifting your hands to the Lord is biblical. Read it. I'll be just waving whatever I've got, but I'll be saying, Hosanna, you, Lord Jesus, are the one who saves me. You have come. You have kept your promise, everyone. The judgment is passed in favor of the saints of the Most High. The ones who are saintly, not because of their actions, but because of their relationship with Jesus. Don't you want to welcome Jesus like that? Wouldn't you like to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Let's do a little dress rehearsal. I want to see how spirited the Santa Clarita church is. All right? I want you to take all of your inhibitions, fold them up, put them under your leg, and I want to hear you shout in your most enthusiastic praise the Lord voice, Hosanna. You ready? No, you're not. I can tell by your yeah. You're not ready. Practice. You want to do it right when Jesus comes. I want you to tell him you're thankful for saving you. I want to hear you say Hosanna. Hosanna. That was pretty good. You can do a little better. Let's try one more time. Hosanna. There you go. Now you've practiced. You're ready. You are ready to see Jesus come. It's going to be soon. It will be more wonderful than you could ever imagine. When others are talking tomorrow about Palm Sunday in Jerusalem, you just know in your heart that a more wonderful palm frond celebration is coming. And you are prepared. You are dressed in the robe of Christ's righteousness your hosannas are ready, and we will bless the name of Jesus together. 
Lord, we praise you. You are worthy of all glory, laud, and honor, and praise. We lift our hosannas to you today, for you have indeed saved us. You have rescued us. You have called us by your name, and we are yours. Thank you, Lord, for so great salvation and such matchless love. May our hearts continually sing your praise and give you glory through Jesus the Christ, now and forever. Amen. Amen.